Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast that brings a human to data. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. One of my favorite parts of hosting this podcast is talking to really cool companies doing cool things with technology. My guest on this episode, Stacy Stevens, Executive Vice President and Chief Client Officer at Nightscope, fits that bill. Stacy and his co-founder created Nightscope with the lofty mission of making the United States of America a safer place. They are working towards this goal with robots. Robots that are running autonomously every day, all day, and have demonstrably made their customers safer. So without any further ado, let's dig in. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Masters of Data podcast. And I think we've got a very interesting episode for you here today where, you know, we get to talk to a lot of uh, very interesting companies. And I think in particular, the company and the, you know, the founder of that company we're going to talk to today is going to be very, very interesting to talk to. So we're talking to Stacy Stevens today, the uh, EVP and uh, Chief Client Officer at Nightscope. Welcome, Stacy. Good morning, everybody. How are you? I am uh, good. I'm excited to talk to you. You know, here I, we, you know, we talked a little bit about this um, when we were our first conversation, but it's uh, really cool. We'll, we'll get into more of this, but I mean, basically, you you guys build robots, and um, you know, I saw those robots at. Uh, I've actually realized I've seen them a couple places now, and and when I got introduced to you, I was super excited to talk to you about this because what you guys are doing is really neat. So I think this is going to be a fun discussion. Well, thank you. I, I'm super excited. I'm always excited to talk about it. But, you know, what What gets me pumped up is, you know, I've got three kids and my kids get to tell their friends that daddy works on robots. And <laughs> it's pretty extraordinary to see their faces go, uh, uh. <laughs> so it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. I, ex- I expect that you, uh, you can uh, win easily, like bring your daddy to work day. <laughs> <laughs> it does play well into the the new robotics programs that are coming up in schools nowadays. I get uh, I get paying quite a bit for that, but yeah, it's it's a great topic to talk about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I want to get to Nightscope and a little bit more about what you what you do. But as always, um, you know, I think it's important to humanize the people that um, you know I talk to, and and I think in particular, you you definitely have an interesting background. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how, what was your journey to, you know, arrive at a robotics company? Like how, how did you, um, what's your background? What's your story? Well, you know, it couldn't be more convoluted. I don't, I don't think if you had scripted it, but uh, it's <laughs> very interesting. I was born and raised in Texas, grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. So uh, diehard Cowboys fan and, and super proud Texan as most of us are. But uh, my uh, growing up, I originally thought, oh, I want to be an attorney. And then I went and worked for one, and I ruled that out super fast. Uh, then uh, I had a huge passion for aviation, for airplanes and flying. I was very, very fortunate to, to be able to learn to fly at the age of 15. And so I had a, had a tremendous uh, appreciation for aircraft and and the like. So I decided, okay, well, I can go study aerospace engineering in college and go and design aircraft. And unfortunately, in the early 90s, that kind of all blew up because defense budgets were cut and all of the aerospace engineers who were previously working on these nice governmental projects flooded the civilian marketplace and nobody, nobody could find work. So I was uh, putting myself through college uh, working full time and ended up working for one of the world's largest financial companies. And 10 years passed and I turned around and went, okay, wait a minute, this is not the direction I wanted my life to go. 
I had a very good friend of mine who was a, a police officer in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex. And we were together one night and he had asked a group of us, Hey, any of you guys want to go for a ride along? And I said, okay, what the heck is a ride along? And he, <laughs> he laughed at me and he says exactly what it sounds like. You come ride along with me. <laughs> and so I went to ride along with him one night. I figured, Hey, if nothing else, I get to hang out with a buddy for eight hours and see what he does. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I, I had this feeling in me that that's really something I needed to do. And so I started doing ride-alongs with other departments. And after about six departments, I said, you know what? This looks like something that I need to do as a profession. Hmm. And I went and sought out the ability to uh, become a police officer. I uh, went through the police academy, got sponsored by an agency, and uh, graduated valedictorian. I uh, was very, very fortunate wow. and put a lot of hard work into it, obviously. But I uh, went and became a police officer, and I absolutely loved that. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed that every day was different, and you know, it was what I could make out of it. So I was as busy as I ever wanted to be, yeah. and I latched onto it. And fast forward a few years, I, I had my first child, and started to have to make some adult decisions. And I decided at one point in time that there was a better way to serve the law enforcement and public safety community if I were to start my own company. And the very first company I started, I co-founded a company that was building police cars from the ground up. Mm. And it was a fantastic company, built that up uh, over the course of about 11 years, had $1.2 billion in pre-orders and sales wow. for that vehicle. And then in 2012, we lost our funding. And so $600 million flew out the window overnight, and we were looking for something else to do. So, you know, what any good entrepreneur does when they get knocked down is they get up, dust themselves off, and start over again. Yeah. And so we did that. And about that time, Sandy Hook happened. And then very shortly thereafter, the Boston bombings took place. And obviously, I'm still very ingrained in the law enforcement culture community and active groups that are associated with law enforcement. And one of the groups that, that I belong to was doing a study on active shooters and specifically on Sandy Hook. And the bullet point that came out of that that really was the catalyst for what we do today was that if we were able to get officers into Sandy Hook just 60 seconds sooner, we could have saved as many as 12 lives. Well, as a father of three, former police officer and entrepreneur, that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Yeah. And I really thought, okay, this is a problem worth solving. Yeah. This is something that we need to try to figure out how to do something about. And my business partner who came uh, out of the automotive sector, he, he didn't, I mean, aside from the fact that we've been working in public safety, he did, he's never done the job, never really understood, you know, how police function and so forth. And he just asked me the, the naive question that I think most people do uh, naturally ask. And that was, okay, well, why don't officers just get in that school faster and, and blow the guy away or take care of the situation, do whatever they need to do. And, you know, that's all dramatized by what you see on TV. But unfortunately, that's how you get more people killed. And so he said, he stepped back and he said, okay, I get it. I get it. But what do we do? How do you actually bring these things to a conclusion much faster? And the only way to accomplish that is through actionable intelligence. And the only way to gain 
actionable intelligence is through some form of eyes and ears on the scene. And so that's what really started us down this path of robots. We started looking at uh, cameras and artificial intelligence and video analytics, but that's become such a commoditized market that we did not want to get lost in this sea of competition. So Bill, my business partner, he came out of Carnegie Mellon, the number one university on the planet for robotics. And he called up a few folks there and said, hey, we'd like to meet with some of your brightest talent that you have. And approximately eight months later, we had a first robot. So that's kind of how we how we started Nightscope. It's, it's really neat. I mean, I'd read some of that and, and, you know, hearing you hearing you tell it, I think there's a, you know, a lot of companies start for a lot of different reasons. But I think that's a really inspiring you know story. And I think in particular when, um, you know, you look at your guys, you know, kind of model your mission to, you know, basically make the world a safer place to make America a safer place. I mean, I think that's a you, you, I mean, it's not something you're going to hear with with most with most startups um, these days. I think that's that's really really neat. Yeah, we used to joke about uh, during the time when we started the company. Of course, everybody was funding the next new social media app, and we thought, okay, yeah, that's all fine and good, but how does that change the world? Right. You know, and we wanted to figure out a way to really make a material difference and change the world. And you know, I think everybody's sick and tired of turning on the TV and seeing about some kind of bad news, no yeah. matter what it is. And this, we felt like, was a way to make a much more positive and meaningful impact. Yeah. And one thing, and I, you know, reading a little bit up on, you know, how you guys started, I mean, this was, you know, was was obviously not in, an easy thing to do. I, I think I saw some pictures of uh, the, uh, you know, first robot put together and, you know, and it, it, it looked like um, you, it, was, it was really quite the science project for, for a while. It's, it's a while. What were kind of the challenges when you guys started out? What what it um, it was obviously you know I'm sure very challenging. What were what were the kind of things you remember being the biggest hurdles to to get this going? Oh my God! Well, obviously nobody had ever done this before. Yeah, uh, eighty billion dollars has been invested into autonomous vehicles, but you know I can almost assure you that nobody has arrived. Nobody in our audience today has arrived at their work or even going out on their leisure in a fully autonomous vehicle. So it was very arduous and a scary task to kind of go down that path of, okay, how are we going to put something that moves on its own in these very public, complex environments? So, you know, we went through a lot of exercises of, uh, you know, form factor. What are they, what are the machines going to look like? And what's the drivetrain going to be? How are we going to protect them against damage? you know, there were so many, many different things. And, you know, it just got more and more complex because building something in a lab is one thing. Right. Once you get it out into the real world, it's entirely different. So that's why, I mean, that's probably the thing that kept us up the most was, you know, once we, once we put something out there, what's going to happen? Yeah. And it's funny because in, in the very early days, the very first robots that we put out, uh, we put out in front of our offices in, in Mountain View, California. And we literally had volunteers sleeping at the office overnight because we were scared to death of what was going to happen to our robots that we had just left running around outside the yeah. office. Yeah. And so we did that for a considerably long time before people said, okay, it looks like they're they're going to survive and uh, <laughs> people in, in the area are going to respect them. 
So then slowly we started to you know, navigate out into the client world and, and start to kind of release them. But I think those were the scary times really was just one, figuring out how to, you know, what's, what's going to be our secret sauce? How are we going to make these work? And two, putting them out into the public domain amongst the completely random yeah. Yeah. You know, cause you, you remind me, I, I don't even remember the name of the company, but there was, um, there was some, uh, company here. I think they were in Redwood city and, uh, they may have been in San Mateo, California, right, right nearby, but it was, but they, they had a little delivery robot. <laughs> there was always some, uh, guy with an iPhone following it to make sure nobody did anything to it. So I, I can totally visualize that. And, you know, one thing too, as, as part of that, I think when I, uh, when I was kind of reading more about what you, you guys were doing, I think, you know, obviously at least anyone from my generation, or maybe I'm the only one, but you know, when you think like a security robot or, you know, so a robot that's helping in that area, you're, you're immediately thinking like RoboCop or something, you know, some, some sort of, you know, something in that oak, but it, it sounds like a lot of what this, the system is doing right is it's, it's helping process a lot of information and having more, you know, eyes, basically eyes and ears in more places. Is that right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, you bring up a really good point. People, the, the whole pop culture uh, feeling about the robots, it, it kind of brings thoughts up into different people for different reasons. You know, you have the, the Orwellian folks who are looking at this scared to death that, you know, the government's going to take over. You have uh, the sci-fi fans who look at this and go, wow, we got R2-D2 and we're going to have friendly service robots. Then you got the people who look at the uh, RoboCop and they think that the robot uprising is coming. <laughs> and it, it really, it, it kind of hits you from all different angles, yeah. right? And that was one of the things early on we had to tackle was how are we going to make these, how are we going to walk that fine line between the pop culture side and the reality side of what they're doing. And really where we landed on that was the design was going to be incredibly important. So I'll give you a quick for example. If we had put these on a tracked propulsion system and we had made the body language on the robots very angular, very stealth-like, and, and we'd given it a matte black paint job and made all the lights on it red, that has a dramatically different appearance mm. to somebody, and, it, and it, it evokes a different set of psychological feelings in people than a soft, curved, white, very light colored, airy, uh, blue light being. It's incredibly different how that, that portrays itself in, in these public environments. And that's how we, we kind of approached this was we wanted something that was going to have a commanding presence, but something that was still friendly and approachable, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it. No, no, that that actually makes a lot of sense. And hearing you describe it, it's, it's really does connect in my mind because I, I think when, yeah, I believe I, I saw the the one that you guys were running for a while. It's it, it Stanford Mall in Palo Alto, California, and then uh, I believe I might have seen one at it's at, at Samsung, and and uh, yeah, I mean those how. Yeah, I think that that was the thing that struck me when I when because I was there with my family, my kids were fascinated, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, and I you know I at first I was trying to figure out what it was because you know again it doesn't fit that mental image of you know what the, the movies at least I watch, but but also yeah it was just it was 
it was a friendly presence. And, you know, once I you know, figured out what it was doing, it, it, it kind of made a, it, it made a, a lot of sense, but it's to, to your point, it's not, it's not the, it doesn't fit any of the like, you know, cultural stereotypes that we're, we're thinking about how, how you'd be interacting with a, with a robot for sure. So that's, I think that's, it's really impressive how you guys have done that, you know, and, and one thing that would be really interesting too, I mean, I, I mean, reading through um, a lot of the material that you guys have on your website, you, you, you obviously have some really interesting stories where it's actually already, you know, made a difference. Cause like you, you were saying, I mean, you, when you kind of, I think you maybe allude a little bit more to this, you, you guys are, well, first of all, you, you're basically the only company out there that's actually running fully autonomous robots 24, seven, 365, right? Uh, to my knowledge, yes. And nobody's challenged us on that <laughs> yet. I mean, we've, We've been to a lot of different events. I just came back from CES out in Las Vegas, which was absolutely surreal. Yeah, and yeah, I, don't, I have not come across another company that's that's running twenty four seven. And I mean, that's super humbling for us and very exciting, uh, and also very scary because that that to me means we have a tremendous responsibility to to other companies uh, that are looking at doing this. So yeah, it's it. It's it's really cool. We got uh, robots running currently in fifteen states across the U.S. and all four time zones, and and here we are, a humble little company out in Mountain View, California. That's really neat because I mean, to your point, I <clears throat> is the one thing about being in the Silicon Valley here in California. I see the you know quote unquote self driving cars all the time, but there's always somebody in the front seat. Mm-hmm. I can remember it's not that. Um, I think I was in versions of that. You know, in in, in college, it's it's you know it's uh, they've been working on that for a long time, and it's still you know in this kind of nascent stage. And you guys have you know taken and made these practical. I mean, what do you have any favorite stories to share? Because I, I I know like my you know what what I've done in my career. There's always those like stories of how customers have used something that kind of stick with you and and kind of define how you describe what you what you do. I mean, are, are there any ones like that for, for Nightscope you, you're able to share? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's a few probably that I could share with you. One actually ties right back to what we were just talking about with regards to design and, and how the robots are, are, are viewed in, in society. Uh, when we first deployed one of our robots at a very large uh, hospital network, uh, there was there was some apprehension in, in folks and saying, oh, what's this new this new tool and what are you guys doing with it? And and it's new technology. I get that. There's there's people who are going to doubt the validity of it and everything. And, and that's that's to be expected. But what was not expected was I guess it was probably three to six months into the deployment. Uh, we had uh, sent a service technician out to perform kind of some kind of service on the robot. And we got a phone call from the service tech very shortly after he was dispatched. And he said, hey, I just wanted to let you know what just happened. I was repairing the robot. I had pulled a a couple of panels off and was making some repairs. And I look up and there's four nurses surrounding me. And he said, hi, can I help you? They said, what are you doing with our robot? (laughs) He said, I'm, I'm fixing it. You're not taking it anywhere, are you? <laughs> they said, no, we're, we just had some routine maintenance to do to it or service. And they said, okay, well, good, because he makes us feel safe. <laughs> and a couple of things came from that. One was it was very personal to them. Two, it had, you know, they referred to it as a he. And that to me kind of resonated as something you know, 
very next step ish for lack of a better mm-hmm. way of putting it because you know they they made it more human mm-hmm. if you will and three they were able to convey that previously you know when they go out to their cars in the middle of the night they were nervous they were scared because it was an unsafe area and the crime in their area in that particular uh, location when once we deployed the robot dropped down dramatically wow. and it made them feel safer and so they wanted to ensure that their safety was continually protected by by making sure that that robot was going to stay there and that robot is still there to this day but I thought that was pretty extraordinary yeah. that uh, you know the the people who were there and that we were that we were really focused on protecting felt protected. Yeah. So that was that was incredible. Another more uh, more recent one, we had an incident that occurred at one of our clients uh, up in the state of Washington in Seattle, and the district attorney's office called me directly, probably six six eight months ago, said, "Hey, um." We just wanted to let you know this is one of the most unique cases that we've ever had where 100% of the evidence was being provided by one of the victims. Because in this particular case, uh, they had three felony charges on an individual, two for uh, burglary. He broke into a couple of different buildings. And one, he actually attempted to damage one of our robots by ramming it with his car. Hmm. And... The victim, quote unquote, was the robot, <laughs> and the robot recorded high definition video of the incidents, the license plate of the individual, individual description, description of the vehicle, direction of travel, time of event. I mean, it had everything, and the disposition of the case was just uh, was just uh, released in December, and all three felony charges uh, were pled guilty to. And that was for us huge, huge win and super exciting also because, again, uh, this was in an area that was previously not covered by uh, any other type of security Mm -hmm. uh, because it was a remote location for this particular Mm -hmm. client. So they were adding in another layer of security to an already robust security program, and it ended up solving three very big crimes for them. Well, how was the robot after? Did it? Anything oh, he, he was fine. Yeah, we. <laughs> now we uh, fortunately, you know, we offer this as a subscription service, so we take care of the robots. <laughs> and when something when something goes wrong, we triage it. Uh, we put them through emergency care, and then we get him back to work as soon as we possibly can. So, uh, yeah, it's it was uh, that was very exciting. Also, and then uh, lastly, you know, when we started this company. We had these grand visions, you know, I talked about earlier that, you know, we wanted to make a material difference in people's lives. And uh, our vision was that, you know, we hope to someday be able to say that we helped make the United States of America the safest country on the Mm -hmm. planet. And so we had this this grand vision that, you know, 10 years down the road, we would be able to tell anybody, hey, any place we deploy a robot, we're able to reduce crime by 50%. That would be a tremendous win for us. Yeah. Well, what, what I can say is that just in the short time that we've been deployed, we have had already numerous clients saying, hey, yeah, we've, we actually have had uh, tremendous successes here, but it's not just 50%. We have 100% reduction in crime. Wow. And that just blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. So, for example, last year, uh, April of last year, XPO Logistics put out a press release, and they said in the first six months, 
of using the robot. They saved uh, $125,000 in six months, a quarter of a million dollars annualized. They reduced crime on their campus by 100%, and they are now looking at uh, expanding to multiple different locations. Wow. In a press release. I mean, that, and that's, I actually was caught off guard because they contacted me and said, hey, would you like to give a quote for this press release? I said, sure. <laughs> and that's not usually the way those kind of things happen, to be very clear. <laughs> no, no. And then uh, this month, the Huntington Park Police Department, they were our first actual police agency who was using this. And they had a really, they had a real big problem in one of their city parks and it was a new area. It's a fabulous little little location because they've got basketball courts. They've got uh, all this recreation, recreational space and places for people to come. But they were having a really bad problem with crime in the area. And so they just put out the statistics from the previous year for the same six-month period as 2019. And they said in that year's time, they had a 10% reduction in calls for service. They had a 46% reduction in crime crime reports, a 27% increase in arrests, and a 68% reduction in citations issued. So, I mean, that's just, that's phenomenal, phenomenal statistics to be able to say a security robot helped in this way. So those, those to me are the things that just get me super pumped and keep me excited every day and getting up and going to work and doing so with a giant smile on my face. Yeah, I can hear it. I can, uh, you, that's pretty, uh, that is really exciting. You know, and, and one, one thing just to kind of, you know, in particular with, uh, you know, being, this is a masters of data podcast, you know, the, the, one of the things that's really interesting to me there is that, I mean, basically these, these robots are constantly collecting data and are, and how does that actually typically work? Are the are the clients themselves monitoring it, or do you guys monitor things for them and kind of write it back? I mean, how does how does that actually? How does, or does the robot do a lot of like triaging of the data itself? Like, how does that how does that work? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so a few things. One, I think it's incredibly important for everybody to understand the technology that we use is no different than anything that people encounter today in any situation. Whether you're right. going to the grocery store, to your bank, to the shopping mall. What we do is the same type of work and surveillance that every responsible company does. So we're not collecting your personally identifiable information. I can't go through your, your phone and your text messages and, and things like that. But what we can do is we can collect forensic information that can be used either to prevent and, and deter crime or the flip side of it is to be able to do investigative uh, forensics. So that's what's very important. Each one of our robots pulls down about 90 terabytes of data per year. Wow. The majority of that is in uh, video, mm-hmm. but we're doing a number of different types of analytics that are all being, as you said, triaged by the robot to say, okay, is this an anomaly for this environment at this time of day in this location. And then once that uh, anomaly is detected, it is then reported back to a security operations center of the client. The client actually owns that that responsibility and that, that information at that point. And they then, with the whole idea of having human in the loop, because you want there to be somebody who's making yeah. those critical decisions, they're the ones who are deciding, okay, is this something that we need to 
either dispatch a security guard or law enforcement to handle? Or is this more benign and something perhaps we need to keep an eye on? Or is it completely uh, normal? So that's kind of that's kind of how the process flows. Yeah, you know, that, and that no, that it makes total sense. And I and I think your your first point is is really essential. I mean, you it's not it's not like this is uh, over and beyond in terms of you know what you would you know because every time you walk into a store, a grocery store, you know, Seven Eleven, you know, you're on you are on video. I mean, but this, this in some sense is a, you're, you're making a more effective way of doing that. That's not, yeah, it, it just feels like it's a more, it's both a more visible and a more effective way of doing a lot of the same things. And that, that yeah, that's, that's really neat. I get asked all the time, you know, well, well, how is this any different than CCTV or close, close circuit television, the little uh, security cameras. And there's a few things. One, you know, in my, in my career in law enforcement, I can honestly tell you that the number of times I got called out to some sort of crime where they had security cameras on location or in place nearby, the amount of times that I was actually able to get something usable, something that had evidentiary foundation yeah. for being able to solve a crime was next to none. You know, you go up and you say, hey, I see you got security cameras and they kind of look at you and they get you, you can see they're getting sickly just by you asking the question. <laughs> and you say, well, can we get the footage from it? Well, a few things. One, it's either the cameras were old analog cameras and the footage is horrific. Yeah. Two, the angle that the cameras are at provide almost no evidence. You know, I'm a bald guy. So if I walk into a store and you take a picture of the top of my bald head, how are you going to identify me? It's, yeah. It doesn't, it's not going to work. Three, well, the cameras are there just for appearance. We don't actually record anything. We wanted to try to deter people, and that doesn't deter anybody if you're not doing anything. Yeah. Four, we don't retain the data, or worse, we don't have, you know, it, they're broken and we're not recording the data anymore. And so, Cameras themselves have become uh, a little bit less than useful than, than what they used to be. And most importantly, they're not ground level. They're not eye level. So yeah. the, the quality of what you have for identifying a subject who may have just assaulted somebody or broken into something or stolen something, the, that doesn't exist or it doesn't exist to the, to the degree that is incredibly helpful. And that's one thing that we wanted to make sure of is we have this five and a half foot tall, three foot wide, 400 pound robot that has cameras, a full 360 degrees around it that allow for this super high definition, even 4k recording capabilities and gives you very, very excellent quality of ground level surveillance. Yeah. No, that's no. That actually that makes that makes a that makes a ton of sense because I mean that's that's kind of the thing that is missing with those kind of stationary cameras is being able to react to a situation and, and get something that's uh, that's useful and and kind of tailored, you know, that can actually move around. And yeah, you know, yeah, that that makes total sense. And let's face it, you know, people who are doing bad things do not want to get caught. Yeah, they don't want to spend the night in jail and. When they see this large object, and I think, you know, when we talk about the statistics of, of how well they've performed, uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that we have this very conspicuous, very obvious uh, machine that's moving around. And, and if you equate it to something, you know, I think everybody can relate to. If you're driving down the road and you're behaving yourself, not doing anything illegal, you're just driving down the road and you look to your uh, to the side of the road and you see a marked police car, what's the first thing you do? Slow down. 
<laughs> you're behaving. You're not doing anything wrong, but you you subconsciously yeah. know, hey, I need to be on I need to be on my best behavior. I need to be on my yeah, right, 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 right. And I think that's what the the robots are having an effective a similar effect of doing is people don't want to get caught. They don't want to spend the night in jail. They see this robot moving around. They raise an eyebrow. They, mm, you, I don't, yeah, I, I can go down the street where one of these robots is not and do the same thing and not get caught. Yeah, no, that makes makes a ton of sense. And honestly, I could talk to you about this uh, for a long time because I think this is uh, this is super super interesting. And it's it's uh, I think I think you, what, where where you guys are going with this is it's going to be exciting to, to 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 follow the company. You know, and and one one thing that. Um, you brought up when we were talking before that I thought was really interesting, kind of taking a, a little bit of a, a right turn here is that, you know, beyond the way that you guys just build the robots, the, the way that you um, have raised the money and the way that you, you guys actually have funded the business is different. Cause I, I mean, I think that's one thing it, it hadn't really, I knew something about that, but when I was looking at your you know website for the research for the podcast and then, and, you know, basically seeing a button to, you know, click and invest, you know, it's again, not typically something you, you see with most startups. So, so t- t- talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, how are, what kind of model are you guys using to, to, to fund the company and how's that, how's that different? A couple of comments. One, you know, it wasn't enough that, uh, for us that we were dealing in the top three technologies on the planet, artificial intelligence, robotics, and self-driving technology. Yeah. That wasn't good enough for us. <laughs> we had to go think, go out and do something completely different on the fundraising side. So uh, I will say that uh, all, all disclaimers and legal things in place, you know, legal counsel is not in the room right now, but uh, have to tread lightly on, on what we talk about on <laughs> right, the financial right. side. But the interesting thing on on what we do for raising money is that there's conventionally you would think the the normal route of going out and raising money is you go find a venture capital fund or some kind of private wealth fund that uh, is going to come and supply you with money to go and build your dream. How that typically plays out is in a in a venture capital world they will come in and they provide a tremendous amount of value because you know they know about for example. Uh, software startups. They know how to do apps. They know about the social media stuff that we talked about before. But find me a venture capital company who knows how to build large-scale hardware outdoors, who is an expert in security matters, and who understands everything about self-driving technology all rolled up into one. Mm, Yeah. It doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. So uh, back in 1933, uh, there was a the 1933 Securities Act, which, if you can recall, back at, uh, after the Great Depression, uh, there were a lot of snake oil salesmen going out, and they were conning people, mostly elderly, into giving them their life savings for whatever snake oil was going to cure all of their ails. And so the government stepped in and said, nope, no more. In order for you to invest in a privately held company, you have to meet certain criteria that we are going to set. And not only are you going to have to meet criteria, you as a privately held company cannot even tell anybody that you're raising money unless you have a pre-existing relationship with them. So if I just met you, I couldn't tell you, hey, hi, Ben, I'm Stacy. I'm with Nightscope. We're raising money. I have to already have a 
some kind of established relationship with you first. Right. Then later on down the road, I can tell you, hey, we're raising money. If you're interested and meet the qualifications, then you can do so. And those qualifications, again, set in 1933 were you had to have a million dollar net worth, not including your uh, your primary place of residence. You had to, or, and these are either ors, they're not all collective. Uh, so you had to have a million dollar net worth, or you had to have as an individual a $250,000 a year annual income uh, for the past three years with the expectation of doing the same next year, or a combined household income of $300,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Again, for the past couple of years with the expectation of doing the same in the following year, or you had to be an officer of the company. And that law has been in place since 1933. <laughs> okay. Can you tell me, ha, have things changed a little bit since 1933? A little tiny bit. <laughs> a little bit. So thankfully, finally in 2012, uh, the Jobs Act was uh, introduced and passed. And uh, and that changed how investment monies were, were allowed to be raised. And so we took advantage of that and we did a crowdsourcing uh, for being able to raise money to do what we are doing today. And the reason we elected to go that route was A, the the aforementioned problem with the the typical route of raising money, but B, you know, as I said before, people are tired of seeing the bad news. And we felt like this was something that the general public would get behind and be passionate about. And they would feel like it was worth investing in. So anybody can go to our website at nightscope.com click the little invest tab up at the top of the page and you can get all the information about what that means. But to date, uh, we we were the largest uh, reggae crowdfunding uh, raise that we're aware of, uh, $28 million. And we had over 5,000 investors that invested in that. Wow. And I think that kind of speaks volumes to to what I said before. People are, people are tired and they want to do something they want to do something different. And so now we have a second raise that uh, that's on that that same platform. Wow, that's really neat. That's uh yeah, cuz I remember I remember uh here you know when that first came out, I, I you know thought it was interesting, but you didn't I at least I didn't see a lot of you know interesting activity around that and it's 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 it, it you're right it totally makes sense with what you guys are doing um it's a it's something that people can understand and that they can connect with and that you know can you know very easily it's very easy to explain how it could affect their day-to-day life and so i think that's that's really neat well th- this has been an uh, amazing conversation stacy i think what you guys are doing is it's important. It's, um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's both cutting edge and, and really kind of getting at the core of what people care about is, you know, f- feeling safe. And, uh, and I think, uh, that's super important and su- super interesting. And may- maybe just to, um, kind of wrap a bow on it, what's next for you guys? Like what's, what's on, on your mind now? Where, where, where do things go next? Uh, so uh, as a matter of policy, I typically don't share kind of what's on the horizon. Yeah. Uh, however, there's, uh, I think there's a couple of things that I can say that, uh, that are quite interesting. One, obviously anybody who's, uh, you know, we're a commercial style product. So anybody out there in the commercial world, who's, uh, trying to figure out how they can take their security to the next level, please visit us at nightscope.com. Cause we can, I can set you up with one of my team to do a full virtual demo and, and literally get to see a live demonstration, uh, before your very eyes. So I can do that too. 
we have a already commercialized a K1, a K3, and a K5, and there's a lot of numbers that fall after that. Yeah. And I'll just leave that at that. <laughs> at three, uh, we have been working very, very hard on a, the next feature of the robot, which is visible weapons detection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already have a working alpha prototype that is doing extraordinary work in detecting weapons of uh, multiple different types and invisible situations. So it's not, obviously it's not going to find anything that's uh, concealed at this point, but you know, what we're, one of the things that we're doing right now with this the financing that we're raising at the moment is we're advancing that, that development as quickly as possible because uh, I think everybody's tired of hearing about uh, shootings of any kind. Yeah. And if we can, again, provide just a, a couple of seconds of extra notification of, of a weapon being brandished, then we're going to be able to help save lives. So uh, I think that gives you a little bit of a flavor of kind of the direction that we're heading and, and really how we're, how we're viewing this technology on a go-forward basis. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Well, rooting for you. I think you're excited to see where, where you guys go next. So, you know, again, Stacy, thank you for coming on the podcast i think uh, people are going to really in, enjoy this and um yeah maybe uh maybe we can bring you back on again and uh when we use some of those things come out and talk to you about them i think that's super interesting thank you for coming on i look forward to it thank you so much ben i appreciate it absolutely and thanks everybody for listening and as always uh look for the next episode in your feed and uh check us out on uh, itunes rate us so that other people can find us and enjoy awesome content like this and uh, take care everybody thanks for listening masters of data is brought to you by sumo logic sumo logic is a cloud native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build run and secure modern applications sumo logic empowers the people who power modern business for more information go to sumologic.com For more on Masters of Data, go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe. And spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.